Our text today comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. David Foster Wallace was an influential novelist and essayist and professor, and I've quoted him before. Um, He gave a commencement speech at a college in 2005. He said this, There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Okay, he goes on and he continues to explain what he's talking about. And he says, the immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's our default setting, hardwired into the boards, into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. What he's getting at is that we're all swimming in the water of our own stories and in the water of our cultural moment in history. The water we swim in shapes our understanding of who we are and how we got here and where we're going. And it forms the way that we think and the way that we love. And it contributes to the assumptions we make about what is true and right and important. Our stories and our culture become a kind of interpretive grid And it's through that grid then that we see the rest of the world. And it it functions in our life like a pair of glasses. It's through the glasses that we're able then to see the world. The question is not, am I wearing glasses? The question is, what kind of glasses am I wearing? To say it another way, it's to have somebody come along and ask you, how's the water today? What story am I living in? Whose story am I living in? Why do I think the way that I think? What if David Foster Wallace is correct and the stuff that our culture tends to automatically be certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded? What if? 
What if I'm not the absolute center of the universe? What if I'm not the realest, most vivid and important person in existence? What does this have to do with 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10? Let me show you. I'm going to break it down like this. We're going to look at three points as we move through this passage of Scripture and wrestle with this very important idea that I think is, is deeply embedded in this text. We're going to see first what I want to call expressive individualism expressive individualism. Second, we're going to look at the work of Jesus. And then third, the way of Jesus. So expressive individualism, the work of Jesus, and then the way of Jesus. So first, expressive individualism. Look at verse four of our text with me. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, when John the apostle says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, he isn't really thinking or talking about Christians who have sinned and need to repent as much as he is talking about people who have rejected the idea of God having any authority over them in their lives. It helps us to see that John is basically making the same point when we get to verse 8. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, he's not talking about Christians who have sinned and need to repent of their sin. He is talking about those who are living in lawlessness and they are following after the rebellious pattern of the devil who sought to elevate his own authority over God's and to wholeheartedly rebel against God's commands. Okay, he's making a distinction here in this text between those who will receive the work of Jesus and walk in the way of Jesus and those points two and three of our, of our message today. And he's making a distinction between those and then those who live according to their own story and under their own authority in life who reject Jesus and live contrary to the ways of Jesus, which is what I'm going to be calling it expressive individualism. He's calling it lawlessness in the text. It's really important that you're with me on this. Okay, John is contrasting two ways of being, and it's important that we see it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 helps us. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Okay, he's saying there are two ways you can go, two ways of being in the world. You can be a child of God and walk with Jesus, or you can be a child of the devil and walk in lawlessness. Now, John probably did not get invited to that many dinner parties pre-pandemic, but it doesn't mean he's wrong. I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about the work of Jesus and the way of Jesus later, but first we need to understand what John is trying to tell us about those who make a practice of sinning. Okay, look again at verse 4 with me. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, John is saying sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is the practice of sinning. Lawlessness is not just someone who has broken a law, but someone who has a sustained disdain for the law. Lawlessness is a determination to reject the authority of God. Anywhere the idea of lawlessness comes up in the Bible, it's not just Christians who have been disobedient and need to repent of their sin and realign their life and practice with the way of Jesus. No, anywhere lawlessness comes up in the Bible, it is talking about the reality of being an enemy of God. 
Okay, again, John is talking about two ways of being in the world. Are you a child of God or are you a child of rebellion? And we've seen this polarization all the way through 1 John so far, and we're going to see it all the way through the end of the letter. Howard Marshall is a commentator on 1 John. He says, there are no shades of gray here. It is a case of belonging to the light or the darkness, to God or the devil, to righteousness and love or to sin. See, lawlessness is a rejection of authority, and in our text and in the Bible, the authority that is being rejected is the authority of God. Okay? But it's more than that. It's more than that. It isn't just saying I reject God's authority in my life. Lawlessness says I am the authority in my life. It's not just a putting off of God's authority. It is a putting on of my own. It is not just a removal of God from the situation. It is an elevation of self. Karen Jobes, also a commentator on 1 John, said lawlessness is the rejection of God's authority and the exaltation of the autonomy of the self. Hey, John wrote this letter nearly 2,000 years ago, but it reads like he's living in Vancouver today. The idea of lawlessness is like the idea of what philosophers and social commentators call expressive individualism. And and please, Christ City, hear me on this. This is the water we are swimming in in Vancouver. David Brooks is a, a columnist for the New York Times. And years ago, he wrote about the way that expressive individualism has been built into our education systems. He looked over a bunch of college graduation speeches and he heard this message over and over. And I quote, if you sample some of the commencement addresses being broadcast on C-SPAN these days, you see that many graduates are told, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams and find yourself. This is the litany of expressive individualism, which is still the dominant note in American culture. And it's true in Canada, too. And if we aren't paying attention to the water that we're swimming in, it infiltrates our thinking as Christians, and we find ourselves being discipled more by the cultural perspective of expressive individualism and personal autonomy and the false notion of freedom more so than we are from the Scriptures. Our discipleship becomes then inherently cultural, not biblical. So what is expressive individualism? Well, You finish this sentence with me, okay? There are some things in life money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Have you heard this? If I say it melts in your mouth, not your hands, you know I'm talking about what? M&Ms. Okay, what image comes into your mind when I say just do it? Man, it's the Nike swoosh, right? See, slogans are are powerful because they point to something else and they evoke a response in us. And because marketers are very good at their job, I now want to order sneakers online with my MasterCard while I'm eating M&Ms. Okay, how about these slogans? You be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Live your truth. 
Hey, there's a, a guy named Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist. He's got a great podcast that I listen to. Um, he wrote an article in the New York Times uh, that said, following your heart is a bad idea unless you're Oprah Winfrey. Um, he's not a Christian guy. And so what he meant was following your heart's not good advice for most people unless you're super moral and you love everybody. Follow your heart can be a really bad thing to tell someone if they're predisposed to murder. Okay, these are the slogans, though, of expressive individualism. So when you hear the slogan, you be you, just like when I say it melts in your mouth and not your hands, and you think M&Ms, when you hear you be you, you need to hear expressive individualism. That's the product being sold here. It's a philosopher who is probably the most influential Canadian that you've never heard of. His name is Charles Taylor. He calls this whole idea of expressive individualism, he, he talks about it existing within the age of authenticity. Now, if we're talking about being honest and good and acting in truth instead of in hypocrisy, the idea of authenticity is good and beautiful. But that's not what Taylor means when he calls ours the age of authenticity. He's not meaning honesty or integrity. He's talking about authenticity as you do you. Right? Be true to yourself. You are special. No one is like you. And you need to find your own path. And you need to be true to yourself. And you need to live your truth. And he's contrasting authenticity with conformity. Trevin Wax is a blogger from the States. He said the key here is that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or any religious authorities might say. Okay? It's individualism, but it's expressive individualism. It's self-defined meaning because you are the authority in your life, then expressed freely and usually passionately in life so that others understand who you really are. Let me say it again. Individualism says you as an individual need to ascribe meaning to your own life. The meaning that you have in your life needs to come from within, not from without. And you can't live by anyone else's expectations and you can't conform to anyone else's standards or be under anyone's authority because you have to be free and autonomous as an individual. That is individualism. Okay? And expressive individualism means you need to take that which is from within your true self and all of the things that you've seen on all of the self-help books and all the pop psychology stuff and the, you know, the, the, the rows of books that you see in chapters that are bestsellers, you see this. Expressive individualism means that you need to take that which is from within your true self and you have to externalize that, express it to the world so that everybody knows you are your own person. You don't conform to anyone else's standards or expectations because you're free. That's expressive individualism. Be true to yourself. You be you. You do you. Follow your heart. Live your truth. Slogans of the product that is being sold to you in cultural discipleship. John the Apostle calls it lawlessness. If you've got kids uh, anywhere near the same age as our daughters, you know the movie Frozen. And you know that Elsa went through this transformation. She was locked up in a kingdom of isolation. She said, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. 
But then she takes a little swim in the cultural water as I'm talking about, and she becomes a liberated, expressive individual with a quick wardrobe change. And in the very next verse of the same song, no less, she then says, let it go. Let it go. I can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. Now, I don't care what they're going to say. See, see, she doesn't care what you're going to say. She doesn't need the chains of submission to your expectations or any authority in her life any longer because she is now an expressive individualist living her own truth. She keeps singing. She says, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem so small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. The song goes on. She's finally happy. This is an example of somebody who has been liberated through throwing off the shackles of the external oppressive authorities in her life and becoming an expressive individual who is now free to live their truth. Ooh. Frozen. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is the rejection of God's authority and the exaltation of the autonomy of the self. Lawlessness is the lie that we are the highest authority in our life. We are living in a world that has dethroned God and enthroned self as the highest authority. The philosophers call it expressive individualism. John calls it lawlessness. That's expressive individualism. Second, the work of Jesus. Again, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay? Lawlessness manifests itself in our generation in lots of ways. I hit but one of them with expressive individualism. I know that lawlessness means much more than that, but it does not mean less than that. But what about the work of Jesus? Because this is what matters for us here as we look at this text. John says two very important things to us. First, he says, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and that in him there is no sin. That's first. Second, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil. Come on, that is good stuff. How did he do that? Well, that's a great question. In John's gospel, we see two aspects of it. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist is out there doing what he's doing, preparing the way of the Lord, proclaiming the coming of the Savior. He's saying that the Messiah has come. Get ready, repent of your sin. The Savior is coming. And then he sees Jesus, verse 29 of John chapter 1. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, without unpacking the fullness of what we call the Day of Atonement and the full importance of having having a sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish. That means that Jesus came to live and die as our substitute. Where he dies in our place and for our sins so that we might end our lawlessness and enter into his love. That he might carry away 
our sin. Take it away from us. Through his death in our place, he literally takes away our sin. He teaches us, Jesus teaches us the same thing later in John chapter 10. Different metaphor in some ways here. John chapter 10 verse 10, the thief, that's the devil, that's Satan, that's the evil one, that's the rebellious one. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, the works of the devil are to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil and give us new life. Christ said, you just hear me. Don't get tired of hearing this. Don't get tired of hearing about Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the center of our faith. Christ City, don't get tired of hearing about Jesus' death on the cross. It is the heart of the Christian message. We can't lose it. David Jackman said the cross is God's answer to man's deepest need. God longs to bring the men and women back into his family, but sin is inconsistent with sonship. So God comes in the person of Jesus, the son, to uphold his own moral law throughout his life and eventually at the expense of his own life in order to take away our sins and make forgiveness a reality. See, lawlessness was us substituting ourselves for God. The work of Jesus on the cross is God substituting himself for us. And it's through that work in our place that Jesus takes away our sin and reigns as our victor over the works of the devil. We've looked at expressive individualism, the works of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the way of Jesus. Third, let's look at the way of Jesus. Look back at the text, verses 6 through 9. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, the way of Jesus is righteousness. The way of Jesus is righteousness. What does that mean? Well, in the text, I want to be clear that he's not talking about sinless perfectionism, where somehow you'll never sin again. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 John that we've already looked at in this series have already given us the grounds on which we can come and repent of our sin. In, John chapter, uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's pretty clear in chapter 1 that we as followers of Jesus have an avenue by which we can repent of our sin. We can confess our sin to him and be forgiven. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He's not talking about sinless perfectionism here in 1 John chapter 3. That's not what he's talking about. Again, what he means is there are two ways to live. One is for yourself with yourself as your own authority, and John calls that lawlessness. The other is to live for God with him as your authority, and John calls that righteousness. It's the way of Jesus. Righteousness is the way of Jesus. Righteousness is thinking and doing and loving and living what is right. It is a picture of wholeness and whole life submission and worship. As you submit yourself to the revealed will of God, the revealed will of God of the Bible, who reveals what is good and right and true. Lawlessness is active rebellion against God's revealed will. Righteousness is active submission and obedience to God's revealed will. And look at this because this is so good in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Christ City, do you know what this is asking you? This is asking who's your daddy? Who you belong to is revealed by the way you live. If you're living in lawlessness, you don't belong to God. If you're seeking to live in righteousness, you're a child of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Next week is all about loving your brother. Loving your brother and sister in Christ. That's what we're talking about next week. But here's what I think we can take away from this. And I think this is so important for us to see. We don't love our lawless neighbors by living as though we are lawless. We might swim in the same cultural waters as the rest of the world around us, but that does not mean we need to drink it in. We love our lawless neighbors by allowing the righteousness of Christ to shine through our lives by the way we live and love them. We're going to celebrate communion together as a community. And you with your house church are going to gather the elements, the bread and the wine, to celebrate the work of Christ because we are people who live the way of Christ because we have rejected expressive individualism and lawlessness and we have surrendered our life to him. Communion is a beautiful picture of what I'm talking about because it remembers and points to and celebrates the reality that Christ has died in our place and for our sin, whereby we may receive forgiveness and eternal life. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to celebrate communion. Move through the liturgy with your house church online and celebrate the goodness of Christ to us in the bread and the wine that point us to the body and blood of Jesus as he died in our place and for our sin. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we say don't celebrate communion right now, but please would you consider the fact that his great love for you is so rich and so deep and so wide that in this moment right now, God has made a way for you to come to him. All you need to do is make the decision that you will yield your life, give up your lawlessness, take the sacrificial life of Jesus that was lived perfectly for you, where he died in your place, the death that you deserved for your lawlessness, and you can give up that lawlessness and enter into his love. You can do that right now. If you're doing that, would you send us an email, 
info at ChristCityChurch.ca, or just send me an email, Brett, B-R-E-T-T, at ChristCityChurch.ca. I'd love to be able to talk with you, pray with you about the decision that you're making right now to surrender your life to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, you are so good to us. Your love is so rich toward us. Your presence with us by your Spirit is so enjoyable and comforting and hope-giving. And God, we just come to you again as a community. Like, we need your help. This is our 52nd Sunday of doing this online. It feels like a very long time. It feels weird. But God, I know that your church is alive and well. And Lord, I pray, God, for those who are not well, Lord, that you would strengthen them and, and, and cause us as the body to come around them and, and to help and strengthen and walk with them and, and encourage and fill with courage those who are struggling. And Lord, for those of us who are doing well, help us to have eyes to see the needs that are there. We're, we're struggling through this time, but God, we want to struggle in Jesus' name. We don't want to struggle apart from you. We want to depend on you. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to live in light of the cultural narrative around us, that we need to just express our individualism and all of the things that I talked about. Lord, would you help us to just be in submission and surrender to your will, for it is so good. It is the right way to live, to walk the way of Jesus. And ultimately, it's the best for us. It's for your glory and for our joy that we want to live this way. So we pray you'd help us to do it. Empower us by your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen.